thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicating bringing wellness into your lives. And yes, we are without Dr. Damien Christoph, who is uh, on a well-deserved holiday to uh, Asia. I'm not sure if he's going to Singapore and uh, I think Malaysia as well. But I'm so excited about this call. We just could not postpone this interview today because um, I think, you know, we Brett, I, and, and uh, Damien has really had a, a goal to produce the Wellness Guys to really ch- change the world in terms of wellness. And uh, I'm honored to be on the phone today with uh, Alan Savory, who is just an incredible gentleman. He's ma- amazing history. And uh, I think uh, today's interview will absolutely change the way people will see the world in terms of just looking at food and, uh, and, and our nature. Um, let's talk a little bit about who he is. Um, he's a biologist, a farmer, a soldier, exile, environmentalist, and, and uh, won a bunch of awards, uh, with one of them being the uh, Banksia International Award, which is actually an Australian award, and also in 2010 won the Buckminster Fuller Challenge as well. And he's, he, his specialty uh, has been on the, um, the dealing with the problems of land, de- I guess, de- uh, desertification, which is uh, back in Rhodesia when he was working there. But one of the things that he has done is that he spoke at TED. Um, I can't even remember what year, um, just recently. And it has just gone viral. It has over a million views on TED. And it's an incredible story. So I don't want to waste any more time. Just wanted to welcome to the show, Alan. Well, thank you. So, Alan, tell us a little bit about you. I mean, obviously, for you, you had a long history. I mean, you were in politics, and you had a self-imposed exile, leaving Rhodesia and uh, moving to America, and you discovered something really fascinating regards to the way we, um, the way the land is actually just becoming desertification, uh, going through that process of desertification, and the whole world is actually going through this. And you thought one of the things we all thought cattle's were are the problem. You know, we're actually you know creating. Um, these masses, are, 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 I guess, in, in the, the land is actually creating this, this problem here with animals. And, and one of the things that you did was, um, I think, was elephants, were, that you actually thought that the elephants were the issues in Africa. And one of your solutions was considering was to actually shoot the elephants and, um, and kill the elephants so that it can, so the grass can actually grow back. But you actually found that that was one of the fundamental mistakes that you had in your life, but you actually were able to translate that and actually make a change in, in, in the environment. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, let me try and condense it because it's a long <laughs> story. Uh, but I began as a wildlife, just wanting to be a game ranger, biologist in Africa, loving elephants, etc., cetera, and, uh, and fiercely proud to join the game department in then northern Rhodesia, etc. And, and uh, very quickly I began to see that we biologists were a greater threat to the wildlife than poachers and so on were because of habitat destruction. And this habitat destruction I was seeing in areas when as a 20-year-old, uh, you know, starry-eyed young biologist, we were setting aside wonderful areas of Africa and the world to be future national parks and they began to deteriorate very lap- rapidly and lose biodiversity. And because of my scientific training, I just accepted what I'd been taught, that if land is degrading, it's overgrazing, overstocking too many animals. And I did the research, inverted commas, gathered the data, interpreted my data, 
and there were no livestock involved. And I said, you know, clearly something we're doing is concentrating these elephants too much in these future national parks. And we, regrettably, we're going to have to cull them and reduce their numbers to a level the land could sustain. That was uh, an incredibly hard decision to make. And it was political dynamite to kill animals in these areas. And so government, our government formed a committee of experts and they checked my research and they all agreed with me and we went ahead and over the following years, as I said in the TED talk, we uh, reduced their numbers by um, 40,000, but the problem got worse, not, not better. So it really set me back loving elephants as I did. Mm. And as I said in the TED talk, I'll carry that mistake to my grave. But it, it, the one good thing that came out of it is it made me absolutely, totally bloody-minded and determined to find solutions. And then I began to see that what was the habitat destruction was that was affecting the wildlife that I loved was the same habitat destruction that had already destroyed more than 20 civilizations and that it, it was humans as well that were components of the problem. And so it's been a long story from there, but basically poor land, degrading land, desertification, what, whatever you like to call it, leads to poor people, poverty, abuse of women and children, uh, blaming others, uh, pastoral genocide in Israel and all over North Africa and, and so on to violence and war. And I, I recently showed a picture of the most problematic area of the land uh, in the world, you know, going right across North Africa for, through the former Soviet republics to China, the most problematic area in the world, and pointed out that 95% of that land can only feed people from livestock. And we believe it's deteriorating because of too much livestock. It's the same mistake I made. And uh, and actually, when I showed that uh, particular slide recently to an all-party group in the British Parliament, um, I actually surrounded the picture with pictures of military funerals in Canada, Australian bush hat on one of the coffins, uh, Americans, uh, British, etc., and said you can expect lots more of these military funerals until we start bringing science into our management. We're, we're working at the moment on deep beliefs that have assumed scientific validity, but there's absolutely no science to back them. And this, this actually, what I'm talking about, covers most of Australia as well. Wow, that's really looking at the big picture, isn't it, Alan? Like seeing how much that just affects all of society. So, um, one uh, one thing, I guess, just to start with, you know, this desertification we've spoken about. Can you talk to us about, you know, just how much of the planet is affected by this and how bad that is? Yeah, the amount of the planet I try to show in the TED talk, and I'd encourage people to look at it because I showed a shot from NASA of the whole world from space. And very fortunately, it's it's coloured in green and brown, you know, shades of green and shades of brown. And what is shown as light green is generally deteriorating very badly. Some of the very dark green isn't, and the brown all is. And I pointed out that, you know, experts are telling people that desertification, which is the ultimate form of the land degradation, is only happening in, in uh, low arid rainfall areas. 
And so I deliberately showed areas in Africa that are high rainfall and desertifying very badly. And so it, what it is, what it amounts to, is the dark green areas are where there's perennial humidity. Every day of the year, it's humid. And when we get to the areas of the world where it's very seasonal, it can be high rainfall, it, it can be 1,000, 2,000 millimeters of rain, but it falls in four or five months of the year. And then we get very dry periods. So that's that. those are the areas that the desertification is occurring. And that's most of Australia. Mm. Now, where that is occurring, uh, desertification really only happens when the rainfall that you're getting becomes less effective. And that's a cumulative effect. So right now I'm, I'm sitting in parts of the United States, New Mexico and Colorado, which are suffering from a severe drought. But actually it's a cumulative effect of many years of mismanagement of the land. So when you get a dry year, it becomes extremely severe. And at the same time, in a, in a few weeks, I'll be back on land that we're managing in Africa, where we right now in this season are having a severe drought, what would have been cat catastrophic for us in earlier years. Mm. And the, the actual river system is drier than we've seen in the last 15 years. But production of grass, shrubs, forbs, trees, all the stuff that sustains humanity, we're actually producing more than we ever could in the best of years in what's so-called drought. So, so these sort of lessons are coming home to me very loud and clear, and we're trying to impart them to the world. Mm. Oh, it's amazing to think what you're doing. I mean, when you're talking about this desertification, this process, it's not just happening just in Australia or, you know, in Africa. But it's happening in the States, Canada, China, Af you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan and other many other countries you talked about. And you, I think you I remember reading somewhere with that estimated one third of the Earth's surface is covered with grassland that was facing this threat. But for those of us who don't really understand um, desertification and what that does, could you just sort of quickly explain to what that what does that mean to the earth? Like, what does it mean to us when okay. in the process of desertification? Okay, let me try and cover it. You, you said one third of the earth covers the grasslands. I'm not talking only of the grasslands. Hmm. I'm talking of all the areas where it is seasonal humidity, and that's about two thirds of the earth. All right. Okay, so I'm talking of about two-thirds of the earth. Now, most of that is savannas, grasslands, natural deserts, which are relatively small, thankfully, and a lot of it's dry, deciduous forests, etc. So the, the, the key thing that, that pins it down is seasonal humidity of the rainfall, and that's about two-thirds of the world. So it's extremely significant because that's the bulk of the land on which the soil, uh, healthy soil, is the greatest reservoir of fresh water available it's to us. It's nine o'clock. Greater than all the lakes, rivers, and dams of the world. And when that soil is deteriorating because of desertification or less effectiveness of the rain, then it means that two-thirds of the world the water is malfunctioning, the water cycle, and that's going to lead to water wars worse than oil wars. But the fate of the water and the carbon in the soil are essentially the same. So that soil, 
when it's no longer able to absorb the water is also no longer to able to sequester the carbon. So really, I'm talking of the whole future of humanity here, not not just desertification. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Uh, well, you mentioned at the TED Talk there's actually only one solution to this, you know, and yes. um, so can you tell us, tell our listeners, what is that one solution? Okay. Now, no scientist will ever, if they're sane, stick them necks out and say only one solution mm, that's what so i meant i just I it's incredible that you said one solution i was like wow <laughs> i want to hear most people give you choices and options so yeah i i said that because we are people don't stop to think about it but we're a tool using animal and you cannot even drink water without a cup or a glass or somebody pumping it, etc. If you want to drink water, mm. you've got to go and put your mouth to the river or scoop it up with your hands, or you're using technology. Mm. Now, for a million years, we've had technology from sticks and stones, and we couldn't change our environment. And then somewhere in the last million years, roughly, we got the tool of fire. Then we could melt the stones and go into the Bronze Age, the Copper Age, the Iron Age, and develop the computers and all the things that we're talking to each other through now across half the world. That's technology. So we had technology and fire. And so for 99% of human existence, we only had two tools. That, then somewhere around about ten to 15,000 years ago, after the domestication of animals and plants, we developed the idea of a third tool, and that was to rest the land. And that probably developed from uh, crop farmers moving their crops to rest the land, rotating their crops, or pastoralists moving their livestock to rest the land. And so for 99% of human existence, we've only had three tools, technology, rest, and fire. And then somewhere in the last 15,000 years ago, we developed the idea of another tool, and that was to use small living organisms um, like cheese and wine, and now to, to make new species through genetic engineering t technology. And the only occasions, the only two incidents I know of in the world where we've tried to use small living organisms to manipulate our environment were both Australian. The myxomatosis to control the rabbits and the moths to control prickly pear. Uh, we cannot use small living organisms to manipulate the environment. So when you look at desertification, it's only occurring because the rainfall is becoming less effective in those seasonal humidity environments. And that's happening because the vegetation that grows there is predominantly grass, and it dies every single year above ground. And it has biologically decay. And I put this very simply in the talk. And if it doesn't biologically decay by the coming growing season, then it oxidizes. And that's a chemical process. And it kills grasslands. And they move to woody vegetation and algae and, and so on. And the only thing scientists ever had, we had as scientists, was to burn it. And uh, we've burnt it for thousands of years, as Australia knows more than anybody with Aborigines having been there for about 50,000, 60,000 years burning the continent, but that leads to desertification. 
So of the tools in our toolbox, technology, fire, and rest, rest causes desertification, fire exacerbates it, and technology can never solve it because it can't replace biological decay of billions of hectares, two-thirds of the world. So that's why I say only livestock is now left for us worldwide to reverse desertification and begin to address climate change. And I would love any scientist in the world to show me where I'm wrong. Yeah, that's amazing, Alan. And I know the first time I heard this uh, from your TED talk, I was just blown away because I know, you know, when I was at school, we, we'd certainly got taught that the livestock were the problem and that they were ruining the soil and dredging it up and scuffing it around and you know, killing off all the plant life. And that really the, you know, the solution to this was for everyone to go vegan or everyone to be a vegetarian and that that was going to solve the problems of the world. And, and I guess from, from your perspective, then you're saying that maybe we've got that the wrong way around. Yeah, we've got the bull by the other. <laughs> and so, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how much have you looked into this, I guess, from a health perspective then, in terms of, you know, uh, what what is the best diet for people? Have you looked into much of that side of things as, as the, you know, I guess the, you know, I, I tend to follow a paleo sort of diet and so obviously including the meats and those sort of things versus a vegan vegetarian diet. Have you looked into that side of it much at all? No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't. Uh, looked into it uh, in the way you're probably asking, you know, reading masses of stuff and studying the research. If you want to know what your diet should be, I always say to people, just mimic nature. Just look yeah. at what nature is telling you, because the human body, like the rangelands and the grasslands and the livestock that I talked in the TED program, all, all of these things co-developed over millions of years and, and the human brain is the most incredible thing evolved through nature so is the whole human etc and if you want to know what you need to eat just look at your teeth you don't yeah. need to do more than that <laughs> you have the teeth of an omnivore you yeah. do not have the teeth of a carnivore you do not have the teeth of a herbivore so if you want to be a vegan, you're defying millions of years of natural evolutionary history. Yeah. What you need to be is an omnivore. Mm. Love it. Love it. So, <laughs> of course you would, Kate, man. Uh, Alan, one of the things that you were breaking up just a little bit, so I just want to kind of repeat what you said. One of the things that the solution is for you is the way we farm. We need to change the way we farm uh, and stop burning, um, you know, the grass to kind of get it, get it going again is actually the, the way we farm, you know, using cattle and farming. But you also suggested that that is one of the ways to actually feed the planet. Is that correct? Yeah, let me go deeper. You, you're talking about farming there. When you talk to the media or most of the public or politicians or scientists or anyone, and you talk about agriculture, they are thinking crop production generally. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, agriculture is not crop production. Mm. Agriculture is the production of food and fiber from all of the world's land and waters. So fisheries, forestry, wildlife management, all of these are agriculture. And crop production is roughly done on about 18% of the world's land. That leaves about 80% of the world that is under non-crop agriculture. And that is the key to our survival. 
not the 18%. So when we look at uh, any of these things like talking about farm sector, I firmly believe, and we at the Savory Institute, our strategy is to try to uh, leave the harbour. You know, if Christopher Columbus had waited in the harbour for approval of some committee, he'd still be there. <laughs> and if we if we wait for politicians or institutions or universities or large NGOs to give us leadership in the world, it's we're still going to be in the harbour when the ship sinks. So we are just saying, look, ordinary people with common sense developed all of the things that made agriculture possible. Let's start putting it right. Yeah. Now, when you look at agriculture being the production of food and fiber, that made everything possible. You couldn't be talking to me now without agriculture. You cannot have a church. You cannot have a university. You cannot have a government. You cannot have any of these things without agriculture. And yet uh, media, politicians, everybody treats it like dirt. Well, it's much more. Now, when we look at agriculture today, it is the most destructive industry we have. More destructive than coal, oil, any other extractive industry. Why do I say that? Because agriculture is causing the great man-made deserts which are expanding to roughly two-thirds of the world. When you look at it from space, agriculture today is producing, we don't have an exact figure. The soil scientists say four tons of eroding soil per human alive, but that's from mostly the 18% of cropland. So if we add the other, agriculture is producing about eight to 10 tons of eroding soil per human alive when we need half a ton of food per human alive to feed our population. And it's rising towards 10 billion. Agriculture is leading to the annual burning of billions of hectares of the world's grasslands, over a billion in Africa alone, a billion, not a million. Mm. And it's leading to millions of acres periodically burning in tropical wet forests. It's leading to the silting of the ocean shelves, the rivers running the silt down to the sea, etc. When you put all of this together, we don't have any industry even approaching it for level of environmental damage and endangerment of humanity. So we've got to start taking it seriously. And I, I don't think any informed scientist in the world would disagree or could argue with what I've just said. So, um, Alan, look, I know when, uh, you know when I was younger and we were at school camp, and our school camp was run by a bunch of people who were very uh, fond of vegetarianism. And, uh, and one of the things they taught us was that you know, if, you have, uh, if you grow plants and then you have animals eating those plants, that only about 10% of the energy is converted from the you – know, ends up being in the animals from the plants, if that makes sense, if you're consuming it. And that, that was their sort of reason as to why um, you know, vegetarianism was better for the planet because you could produce more with less resources, I guess, or less land. Uh, but from what you're saying, it sounds like that maybe um, by, by making more of the land available, by keeping more of the land healthier, that's going to have a more significant advantage than that. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, what they're talking about of eating plants, that's fair. That's a good comment on a, on a cropland or somewhere where you're producing grains or vegetables that we can digest. But have any of those people tried digesting grass? 
Unless I've got six stomachs, they might find that difficult. Yeah, most of the world can't produce these crops. It can only produce grass, shrubs, forbs, and things like that. And we don't have, uh, we have an omnivore's teeth, as I said. We don't have a herbivore's teeth and a herbivore's digestive system. Mm. So we can't do anything with that grass. We're herbivores with a symbiotic relationship with microorganisms in their gut. They can digest it, and they can convert that to human food. Mm. We can't. So it's it's a very shallow uh, point of view, really. It's it's valid in a very small area of the world. Yeah. Have you, Alan, have you taken, like, obviously you have a solution and you, I assume that you've actually been actually experimenting that and where, whereabouts are you experimenting it and what specifically, what are some of the specific things you're actually doing to create, um, you know, creating less carbon into the world and also providing food for people? Well, we're not experimenting with anything. Mm. There's no need to. Right. You're doing it. Uh, yeah, all we're doing is is uh, is providing a better way for people to make decisions holistically, as we call it. Mm. You know, when you look at the the work of um, Costa, uh, uh, who wrote um, oh, the Watchman's Rattle, she reasons that the past civilizations failed not be- only because of their agriculture failed, but because their societies couldn't deal with the complexity of rising population and failing environment or land degradation. Mm. And, and I think she's right. And they shelved the problems for future generations while they turned increasingly to um, religion and faith and sacrifice. And I, I just see nothing hap- changing except the scale of the problem, because mm. uh, that's now global. And... Um, when you look at that complexity, that's all that I'm not a wise guy or a clever person or anything. Just by plugging away and looking for something that would consistently work, I almost accidentally stumbled on what we call the holistic framework, uh, which is simply a way that any people, any in their homes and any environment can begin to make decisions holistically in other words, looking at environment, economy, their local economy, even of the family or the community, and their culture, and make these decisions soundly. And that's what we do. And then when that leads us to see that livestock are needed for any reason to sustain humans, or because it's the only thing now available to science to begin seriously addressing climate change, desertification agriculture, then we use a planning process, you know, what we call holistic planned grazing. And that's what I talked briefly about in the TED talk. And we developed that from 300 years of experience in Europe uh, in dealing with very complicated situations. So naturally it worked. We just adapted that to the biological need. So we're really only promoting two things a holistic framework to make your decisions better, and then this framework to address the complexity on the land when livestock have to be integrated with wildlife and all other land uses and crops, etc. 
And uh, and Alan, you know, for for those who haven't seen the TED talk, I mean, the uh, the the results you've gotten from that in in land in Africa and also in the Americas has just been absolutely remarkable. And I encourage people to go and check out that talk and and look at those before and after pictures because they, they they just speak for themselves. They they they're just remar- just amazing. They blew me away. And so I encourage people to go and have a look at that. Um, I've got one more question, Alan, because we are getting you know close to the end of our time here. But one thing I'm particularly interested in, I've had a number of people make this comment to me as well, is is what about in Australia? Because um, you know, Africa and Americas, those are those are continents that historically did have a lot of hooved animals on them and, and walking across them. Um, obviously, Australia hasn't historically had that, or you know, at least in the you know longer term history, we certainly have in the shorter history. But um, you know, how does that change in the Australian environment? given that we're more used to the soft-hooved or the soft-footed animals? Well, you haven't got any soft-footed animals uh, grazing that I've seen. I've been over there many times. And the first time I went to Australia, uh, you know, I went out for a walk early in the morning and I found myself tracking cr- uh, kangaroos just as easily as I could track kudu or impala. Who the hell told you your kangaroos are soft-footed? Well, I guess I was just thinking the fact, that purely from a layman's perspective here, but just thinking they don't have hooves that I, you know, like a, that a cow does, for instance. No, you don't have to have a hoof. I mean, whether we're using camels or sheep or cattle or any of these animals, it's the same. Our, our elephants don't have a hoof, but my goodness, they're playing a tremendous part in our land management on the project we're doing in Africa, and they don't have a hoof. Yeah. You don't need a hoof. I don't know where that idea came from. Cool. Hmm. Great point, Alan. You are. It's it's an incredible thing to to for you to be able to do. You know what you do and just changing the world. And uh, you know we need more people like you. And and thank you for spreading your message. What are some of the things that we can do as listeners um, in our own home? What is your suggestions for us to kind of take it to the next step? And you know, the, how can we play a part? Well, you know, you you are already doing it, and that's creating more public awareness. Because the only way we're going to solve these problems, and again, I'm using the word only very knowingly, okay? The only way we are is on the ground with farmers, fishermen, ranchers, pastorists beginning to make their decisions differently. But they have to be empowered by policies that that enable them to and release the creativity. And every government I work with, whether it's in the European, uh, you know, in Europe or UK or here or Africa, Australia, in every single case without exception, I found that faulty government policies are leading to laws and regulations that make it almost impossible to apply science in agriculture. Oh, great. Thank you, Alan, thank so you so much for it. Change public opinion. When public opinion demands change, it will happen. It will not happen till then. That's right. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, if you are interested in seeing Alan when he comes to Australia, um, go to, actually for anybody in the world, if you're interested in just listening to Alan, I guess he's traveling to Canada and America and, and, and Australia, obviously, go to Savory Institute. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y Institute.com. And so you can check out his um basically what he's doing and what, what they're doing there and also where he's speaking and presenting as well. And, and um, donate to support Alan's work. I mean, Alan's doing some amazing work. So, you know, if you want to contribute to that, you can do that as well, which is really important. Yeah, definitely. And I really encourage that. And, and for those of you thinking about coming to the Wellness Summit, you got to come out. And, and we're going to try to get Alan on uh, via Skype on video uh, when he's here in Australia. For those people um, in Australia, they, he is coming in August. And uh, we're hoping to get him on, on our video from the on. I guess, depending on technology, we'll try to 
to get him on on the Wellness Summit. So make sure you check that out on the Wellness Guy Show. Thank you so much, Alan. Really appreciate it, your time and your expertise. Well, thank you, guys. Well, as always, guys, go to thewellnesscouch.com to leave your comment below this particular episode and tell us what you think. We'll love to hear more from you also on Facebook and uh, join a, you know, keep the conversation alive on this one and tell us what you think about this because I'm pretty excited about it. So go to facebook.com slash thewellnessguys and like us while you're there. And as always, go to iTunes as well and subscribe to our podcast and all the other shows on The Wellness Couch as well. And if you're there, give us a five-star rating and give us all your feedback. So until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example and let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Couch Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Are you ready to take your life to the next level? What about being world-class in anything that you do? We're to hang out with like-minded people and mix with the wellness leaders of Australia. If your answer is yes to any of these questions, then we'll love to see you at the Wellness Summit. But hurry, it's fast approaching, coming up on Saturday, August the 17th at the Crown Melbourne. Tickets are just $147 and can be booked online at thewellnesssummit.com. See you there. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.